Well, our beginning scripture for this evening's sermon is in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 16, which is one of the scriptures that's among other things, there are many things we can draw from this passage, but one of them is the importance of the fact of the unity of Christ's universal church. And so we read here the words of the Apostle Paul, but the inspired word of God as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Ephesus. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself." in love. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us, at least for the moment. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do pray that the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word this evening will be blessed, that each one of us might indeed be knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective work by which every part does its share, that we would be growing together edifying one another, building one another up in the image of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John, the Lord prayed that his people would be one. Reflecting that unity of the persons of the Godhead, even as the Father and the Son are one. He wants us to be one in some way that reflects that. In John 10, verse 16, he promises to make all his sheep, Jew and Gentile, not two flocks, but one flock. Recently, we saw that 
Christ alone is the head of the church, that the church is his body. And you'll notice that he isn't one head with several bodies, he's one head with one body. The church is Christ's bride, and Christ is not a polygamist. He has one bride. So we see that there, is, there must be a unity of God's people. All those things speak of the union that believers have with Christ, and then through Him with each other. And the Westminster Confession summarizes what the Bible says about this in its chapter on the communion of the saints. Communion Here's simply a word for union with, literally is what it means, oneness with. It's often translated also as fellowship. There is a oneness of God's people. The Westminster Confession summarizes this in three paragraphs in its chapter on communion of the saints. The first paragraph says, all saints, and of course we should maybe stop there just for a moment and, and be reminded, remember that in the New Testament, the word saints is always plural for one thing. It's never that one person is singled out as Saint Luke or Saint Paul, as just one particular person, but saints is always the holy ones, literally is what it means. Uh, it, it's always all of God's people. Sometimes it's the saints in one particular city that an apostle writes to. But we know that the word saints refers to those people who are holy, that is, they're set apart from the world by God. It doesn't refer to just particular Christians who are particularly special and, and extra holy. It refers to every believer, because every believer has been set apart from the world unto God. So those are the saints that we're talking about here. And so that's what the confession is referring to when it speaks of all the saints. So it's not just some special category of of extra holy believers, it's all of us. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are one of the saints. And so the confession says, all saints being united to Jesus Christ their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So there are two main parts of that paragraph. One is to speak there of, of our union with Christ, and then through Christ of our union with one another. So being united to Christ, we participate in His graces, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and his glory. And they're not just making that up out of whole cloth. Scripture tells us these things. Philippians 3.10, Paul talks about his identification with Christ, saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So by the way, that's the goal of, of every Christian walk, that we might know him and know him all the more. And the power of his resurrection, he says, and may share in his sufferings, says, becoming like him in his death. We have a share in his sufferings, and sometimes it's a very literal share, as the world makes us suffer because we belong to Christ, whom it hates. 
The Romans 6.5 tells us if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the presumption there is that, in fact, it says prior to that, that we're united to Christ's death in our baptism. So it's really by faith that we're united to Christ in his death, and our baptism points to that. And then, just as surely as we're united to Christ in his death, since he did not remain dead, neither shall we. And so there are two implications there in Romans 6. One is that we now walk in newness of life, and we can be assured that as surely as he died and rose from the dead, so will we. So there we see that we're united to him in a death like his, but we're also united to him in a resurrection like his, his glorification there, his resurrection, his glory. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, tell us, The God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there we see that because of our union with Christ, it's already true. We'll see it fully manifested in the future, but there is already a truth. There is already a fact that you have been raised with Christ, and you are seated already, in a sense, in the heavenly places, because that's where Christ is seated, and you have a union with him. As Paul says, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the age to come, you'll see that fully realized. But even now, there is a sense in which you as a believer are seated in the heavenly places with Christ because that's where he's seated and you have union with him. And because believers are united to Christ, each of us is united then, the second half of that paragraph of the confession, that each of us is united then to every other person who is united by faith to Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 tells us this. Therefore, remember that you, here it's speaking of how the Gentiles and the Jews were once divided. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So that's earthly Jews there that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He's actually making reference to the separation barrier past which uh, Gentiles could not go upon pain of death in the temple complex in Jerusalem. And also then the barrier that would be erected in many synagogues where Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, could come and hear the word preached, but they didn't mingle with the Jews. But God has broken down that barrier in Christ. For he himself is our peace, Paul says, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. So there's one body of believers, right? Thereby putting to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building... So notice there's one building now that God is making out of every believer, being a stone in that building as it were, the foundation stones being the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone by which everything else has to be aligned, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 4.16 says, from, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 stress the fact that we are each a body part, as it were, an organ of one body, mutually supportive and interdependent with one another. And for, and, uh, let's look at Romans 12 here first. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members, as body parts, in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we saw not too long ago in 1 Corinthians 12, that we are one body in Christ, though each has different gifts and different functions. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Because he's implying, that in fact, the construction of the Greek implies the answer has to be no. Yes, it is a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye... Where would, the, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So there we see there are many lessons, of course, in that that we dug into when we were making our way through 1 Corinthians 12. But a major point there is that all believers are members of the same one body and thus because of their union with Christ have a union with one another. This is what we call the communion, the fellowship of the saints. So we're obliged to worship together and mutually to edify one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build one another up. And then verse 14 of that same chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Galatians 6.10 As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a duty because we are one body to edify, to build one another up. Building on that, the confession then says, saints by their profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have a duty for first for spiritual edification, the confession says, but also then, as we can, to help out those brothers and sisters in Christ who are in physical need, as we have the ability to help them. And that first, uh, the first priority is to the saints who are near to us, but then also to all others as we're able. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every day Christ's return comes nearer to us, and so we have more and more reason all the time to be edifying one another and encouraging one another and to be gathering together for worship especially. Isaiah 2.3 predicts, And many peoples, different people groups, shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There we see many peoples from different people groups will come together as one to go up to Jerusalem and worship the Lord as it were. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And 1 John 3.17 If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So there we see caring for one another's physical needs as well as spiritual needs is important. Now this idea of communion of the saints can be and and has been abused. It has been used idolatrously by Gnostics, by New Agers more recently, by Mormons and others to claim Equality with Christ. 
Christ is God or a God, depending on which religious system we're talking about here, they will say, and so can you be. That's the claim of the New Age and in a different way of the Mormons and of ancient Gnostics that you can be like Christ. You can be a God with a small g as well. That's the claim of the word faith movement today. That we are small g gods. We're made in God's image and because he speaks things into existence, so can you. Well, that's, that's a blasphemous doctrine. It's been also abused by thieves, by statists, by socialists to make free with the private property of others. You know, they'll say we're, we're really all one in Christ, aren't we? Those who, of us who profess Christ as our Lord. I would dare say such people who say this are probably false professors, but they'll be professing the name of Christ the Lord, and they'll say, well, we're all one, so that means your stuff is my stuff. And I should be able to take what I please from you. Well, the Westminster Confession responds to that kind of thinking. So today isn't the first time that people have thought of redistribution of wealth. And the, our, our ancient fathers and our more recent Reformation fathers had to deal with these kinds of things. Well, the Westminster Confession says, This communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. So the fact that we have a communion with Christ doesn't mean that we share in his nature as God. That's not what scripture teaches. But also then it goes on and says, nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So communion with Christ does not so unify us to Christ as to make you or me God or some part of God or to have a share in his nature or any such thing. Some of the ancient Gnostics following the Platonists said that each one of us, our, our soul indeed, was a spark of the divine. It was a little piece of God that had come to earth. Well, that's just blasphemy. And of course, because of that kind of doctrine and because of their belief that the material world was, was automatically evil, inherently evil, not just that it had been corrupted by evil, uh, but that it was inherently evil and that the spiritual world was inherently good, the, the goal was not to be resurrected into a new heaven and new earth, but to escape the world. And you had to do this by a certain special knowledge. That's why they're called Gnostics from the, the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. But you and I are not God. We're not part of God. Colossians 1, 18 and 19 tells us of Jesus. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom are all things and through whom we exist. A lesson every human being has to learn is that God is God and you are not. That's a that's something that our sin doesn't like. Our sinfulness wants us to be our own God. I want, in my sin nature, I want to make my own rules and rule my own life. To glorify myself and not my creator. But I'm not God. He alone is God and I am not. Jesus Christ is like us in his human nature, but he has that divine nature as well, and that is not like us, except in the ways that God's communicable attributes have been handed to us as the Lord created us in his image. But he has those attributes infinitely, and you and I have them finitely, because we're not infinite. We're not God. God is God, and you are not. Likewise, communion with other believers does not so unite us to them. We're, we're so united to them in Christ that all of the benefits of Christ that rest upon one believer rest upon the other believer, but he gives different gifts and that we're to work together as one body knits itself together and, and builds itself up. But that doesn't mean that whatever in this world belongs to you belongs to me. The Lord spoke to the community of faith, people that he had called out of Egypt, rescued and made them one people, the same nation he called his bride, he said to them, you shall not steal. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the fact that theft is a crime, and considered so in both the Old and the New Testament, the fact that God considers this to be a violation of his very holy character, that it's a sin in his sight for one of us to take the property of another without permission, means that God actually respects the principle of private property. It is a godly principle. Your property doesn't belong to me. And I can't say it does simply because of our union in Christ. I can't use that as some excuse to take your property. When we're careful not to abuse it, though, the doctrine of the communion of saints is a beautiful fact of God's grace. You and I are so united to Christ as to participate in his atoning suffering and death and thus in his resurrection and glory, to such an extent that it can already be said that we are seated with him in the heavenly places, even though it is not yet fully realized. This is one of those several doctrines that we find in Scripture that have both an already and a not yet aspect. But it is already true in a very real spiritual sense that you as a believer are even seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And we are so united to one another that to build each other up is like a body feeding and caring for itself. That's a, a reality. It's not a reality that is easy to see physically, but it is a spiritual reality nonetheless. 
We're so united to one another that building one another up is like a body feeding and caring for itself. Which means that we should do that. We must do that. Because of this communion of saints, we have a duty to support one another in our spiritual walk especially. And then also, as the confession says, to come alongside of one another to help meet physical needs as well. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that by faith, your Spirit has united us to Christ so that we have union with Him and with all believers. That everyone united to Christ is thereby united to one another. And so we pray that you would make us see that union. So unite us, we pray, as Jesus himself prayed, that we may be one as the persons of the Godhead are one. Let our unity reflect your unity, that the world through us might see who you are. We pray these things in the name of the one who is both God and man. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.